Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. And welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. I am putting this out on Thursday evening because um, I was due to have a chat with James Benj. And at the time of recording, or just before the time of recording, we had not heard anything about the FA charge uh, that Mikel Arteta was landed with after the uh, Newcastle game, his comments after the Newcastle game, although we were expecting something this week in terms of a decision. And just before we started recording, it dropped. And James and I have had a couple of minutes to uh, to read over the decision that's been made and how it's been arrived at and all the rest. And certainly there's a fair bit to get into. So I just thought, you know, given that it's slightly current and all the rest, let's get the podcast out this evening rather than make you guys wait until Friday morning. So without further ado, my guest from CBS Sports is James Bench. Hello, James. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm all right. I was, you know, we were uh, due to record at 4 p.m. and about 5 to 4, I was flicking around on Twitter. And my first question to you was going to be, are you kind of surprised that it's taken just so long for us to find out what's going on with Mikel Arteta and that FA charge? And then literally, as I was uh, flicking around, up came the... Um, up came the tweet from the FA spokesperson to say that the charges against Mikel Arteta had been, uh, what's the word, uh, not unproven? Is that what they said? Not, right? it's, yeah, it's not proven. Not, he's, not, he's not innocent, I guess, but he's yeah. not guilty. There you go. That's, uh, yeah, quite a few people have got away with quite a few things because of that distinction. But uh, (laughs) we've taken a few minutes to sort of read over the 32-page report and the workings that they, um, you know, have gone through to come to this conclusion. I was reading it uh, and I was thinking, Jesus, this is like... This is some process. No wonder it's taken quite a lot of time. Mm -hmm. There were linguistic... Uh, discussions about the use of the word disgrace and I like that I, I enjoyed that where you know this sort of subtle distinction between the word disgracia in Spanish and the word disgrace in English and then he said well no I didn't mean that and then this cross examinations and uh, presentations and evidence being given here there and everywhere and they're looking at all these old cases and things like that I mean there's a lot going on um, it is a it's a semantic journey, isn't it? Mm. I mean, you know, when you fire up the 
I mean, it, it took me back to sort of university times and all that fire, like opening a document, seeing it was much too long for the amount of time I've left myself. Go <laughs> right, we'll go to the conclusion and then we'll work our way back up and find the important <laughs> bits. I mean, I, I was that disgracia thing is it's fascinating, isn't it? Because mm. um, the one thing I have to, I mean, I don't think Mikel Arteta who has lived in England now for so long is unaware of the uh, difference in the meanings of the word disgracia and disgrace. But I equally think it is a very effective uh, case, a very effective point for the defense. But I mean, I suppose ultimately what's fascinating here is that the FA haven't, but the, the officiating community have almost been sort of hoisted by their own petard here in the, as far as I can tell from reading the document, what this really comes down to is Mikel Arteta saying, well, look, you know, when I said it's an embarrassment, I was talking in the abstract. I was talking about VAR. Mm. And you can't argue with me thinking that because you yourself have used comparable words. Did they not refer to it as this, that apologize for the systemic issues within VAR the Premier League had uh, after the uh, the goal that wasn't for uh, for Liverpool? Yeah. And that ultimately, it, it seems, and you know, as I said, as you said, we've only had a little while with this document, but it, it seems like that's how. I don't want to say Arteta got away with it because I don't think you know you should be banned from the touchline for an emotive reaction in an emotive situation. But it's how Arteta, how Arteta's defence held up, I guess, is the right way to phrase it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly there was a there was a lot going on. I mean, Mikel Arteta responded to the charges, just sort of going back on this disgrace thing. And in the letter, uh, Mikel Arteta said, um, the word disgrace has a very similar spelling and pronunciation to the Spanish disgracia. The Spanish word has connotations of misfortune, tragedy, or bad luck, rather than the connotations of the English equivalent, which suggests contempt, dishonor, and disrespect. And then in the hearing, there's a lovely little footnote where they say in the hearing, uh, Mikel Arteta made it clear that he was not suggesting that when he used the word disgrace in the interviews, he had actually been intending to use the word disgracia because, you know, he's been an English speaker mm. for so long. Um, uh, he said... You can see why he would, like, mentally reach for that word. Sure. I, fair, I mean, it's fair to say that while he's an English speaker, I don't know how Mikel Arteta's brain works, but I, I suspect it's not in English. Yeah, probably not. But, you know, I, I enjoy the part where um, he, he clarified that he had intended to use the English word and not as a mix-up, <laughs> and that the uh, the use uh, or the, the statement in the initial letter, uh, any suggestion to the contrary in the letter, was the result of miscommunication between him and Arsenal when the letter had been prepared. We accepted that explanation. And I think what they said somewhere in this, and I can't find exactly, where they, they sort of said he was a very compelling uh, witness, if you like. Like, they found him believable when he talked about wanting to improve standards and wanting to, um, you know, uh, make these points for the greater good of the game, th these were things that they absolutely believed when Mikel Arteta said them. And of course, the proof will be in the pudding at some point in the future when, when that will be tested. But, you know, I do think that is a very interesting sidebar to all of this, that, that this um, this desire for better standards, which I think kind of gets lost in all the discussion about refereeing mm. and all that, because, you know, everyone will say, well, you're just, you want the decisions for your own team and every manager is out for themselves, which is you know, completely understandable. I do think at the core of this entire discussion about refereeing and PGMOL and VAR is that that, that gets obscured, that, you know, if it's good for Arsenal to get more decisions or correct decisions. It's good for every team and good for the sport mm. and good for football. And maybe, maybe we don't have to have all these discussions about refereeing all the time. I, and I think we, we should say that only to an extent, I mean, ultimately, you know, managers can't make refereeing better. PGMOL can make refereeing better. But, but to an extent, the challenge, if, if this is, you know, if Arteta is genuine in what he says, and I have no reason to doubt that he is, the challenge then will come when, and it feels like it's been a while, but when Arsenal get that, you know, that equivalent of the Newcastle goal awarded in their direction and Arteta feels like he can say the honest truth and say, oh, I, I, I don't know if that's a goal. Now, no one has said that. And like you say, that is, that, you know, for this to be really effective, we need in our post-match press conferences when we, we're still going to ask about contentious decisions. We always will. We kind of need the managers that have benefited from them to to own that mm. uh, and to say, you know, I don't, I don't want to win that way. That will, that won't 
change everything entirely. But if the game's not united entirely behind pushing for higher refereeing standards mm. and 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 talking about every mistake, then it's not going to go anywhere. I mean, I, I I think to an extent, this is all a little bit overblown. Isn't the right word because it, it could be better and it, and it must always be better, but. There's a very curious thing with the, the Kai Havertz goal on on Saturday where the referee made the right I mean right decision within the laws and it was it was actually a really good piece of refereeing if you believe that he had he saw that and that's what he's trained to do. So you kind of have to take him on his word that if he saw that Kai Havertz was the last person to get that touch and he understood what that meant within the context of handball. Mm. It's very easy to be skeptical that he didn't, but I mean, he made the right decision. And to an extent, it's also on us to, to sort of acknowledge that. Mm. And it's on Arteta maybe to acknowledge that. I know why in that press conference, he said clear and obvious all the time mm. uh, and left us with nothing to, to work with. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a hard and, and frustrating thing to talk about refereeing. And I think yeah, you don't want to sort of drag in the context of Turkey too much, but you also have to be aware of that, that like what's just happened in Turkey where sure. a president has punched a, 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 you know, that's not, I'm not saying that's going to happen in the Premier League. I'm not saying if it happened, it would be Arteta's fault, which I've seen other people say, but like we are at a tripping point, a, a tipping point here where the, the one thing you don't want to do is lose the referees you have as, as poor as some of them might True. be. Well, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, one of the things, um, you know, when we talk about this sort of stuff that I, I think is is really important is to, you know, state very uh, clearly that you're looking for uh, a constructive discussion. You're not looking for abuse and things like that. And obviously what happened in Turkey is completely and utterly unacceptable in any way. I'm sort of cautious about an extreme reaction being applicable across the board. Um, I think the person you were referring to was Peter Walton, who who said, well, I hope now next time Mikel Arteta or Jurgen Klopp uh, go on about referees, they'll think about, you know, what the consequences could be. But, you know, I think that's a very, it's a false equivalency. Um, I, I don't really accept that. But, mm. you know, there is, of course, a need to do things in, in a, a constructive way. I mean, one of the sort of moving slightly off the, the refereeing thing, but the the thing Arteta said in his, uh, statement and, and throughout this uh, uh, process was that you know he was in an emotive state basically after the the game his team had lost every manager hates to lose and I think maybe uh, more than uh, most Mikel Arteta really really hates to lose and the the circumstances in which his team were beaten by Newcastle uh, were contentious to say the least whether the um, Howard Webb show showed that they got everything spot on is neither here nor there it's still contentious on the day and I'm curious as to what you think about this because I've been, you know, seen a lot of comments and seen people discussing, well, is it fair to ask managers questions in the immediate aftermath of a game like that where they are in this emotive state and are likely to come out with things that, A, make great fucking headlines uh, <laughs> and great television, but A, also could land said manager in hot water. And of course, you know, it's not quite like poking a bear or anything like that. But, you know, as somebody who works at these games and who gets home, you know, late at night. <laughs> and who, who did exactly what you were saying. Well, asked, yeah, they, there you go. In an emotive state. Yeah, 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 you know. But but is is there, you know, maybe a sort of like a half hour warm down time? Could that be a... Could that be a good thing for managers or is it incumbent on managers, you know, given their positions and the, the way they understand the media because they all understand the media to, to a great extent. I think Arteta is, is, you know, one in particular who really, really, uh, when he needs to play it with a straight bat, he does that. When he's asked about anything that might be slightly controversial, he'll say, oh, next question. I don't want to talk about yeah. that. If he's asked about another team, another manager, you know, he'll just give you the straight down the line answer, which, you know, it can be a bit boring, but but it's part and parcel of, of the way he operates within the media. So, you know, is it a case that, look, if he's in an emotive state, he's got to sort of count to 10 before he answers a question or would a half hour cool down time do him or anybody any good? Certainly newspaper editors wouldn't like it because they wouldn't get the, 
<laughs> the addition to it. My immediate thought, which tells you how much I'm worried about the good of the game, doesn't it? As opposed to the good of getting home before midnight. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't see. I, I suppose this is though incumbent on the media, isn't it? It's. It's all just a bit. It's always a bit too easy to make the story into refereeing, and I think after the Newcastle game, it that was the story. But too often it sort of becomes this like, and I would I would throw in the sort of Sky Sports Monday morning ref watch. Mm. It, it becomes like well, that you know we, we've got to write the back page has got to be Mikel Arteta slams referees, Eric Ten Hag slams referees. <laughs> it's and this is no criticism of, of individuals or, mm-hmm. or newspapers because as I say, I asked that question after Aston Villa. I thought it was irrelevant. Uh, a relevant thing. I thought Mikel Arteta might say something interesting on it. Um, but I think sometimes it's refereeing isn't the story. It might be a thing that happened, but you know, uh, pick an example, Chelsea Brighton, like the, 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 the refereeing story of why Conor Gallagher got two yellow cards for two actions that deserved a yellow card. It's not really relevant, but it's a, it's a crux that we can sort of have Dermot Gallagher on, on Monday morning saying, oh yeah, you know, I thought the, the referee got that right. I thought the referee got that wrong. And, I, you know, that is just, it's tedious. It, it's, 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 you know, mindfuckery of the, like the greatest extent. You're just like, why are we wasting our time? Of course there are, and there are occasions where it's really worth talking and, and, and educating viewers, sort of helping viewers to understand why, as infuriating as it is that there isn't a camera on the goal line, that there isn't a, you know, a 360 degree panning camera that can tell you whether Joe Linton touched the ball, just why mm. these decisions have been made. I, I don't, I'm not saying it, all these have to be educational, but I just think too often it's a, it's an easy form of controversy within the media. I don't want managers to sort of feel like they have to be as, as anodyne and playing it safe as, as Mikel Arteta did. But then I do think, for myself personally, for my industry, then it's incumbent to not, you know, not when, when someone's a bit sort of saying it, we, th- we think that decision's wrong. It doesn't have to be that they slammed the referees. They just sure. didn't like the decision. Yeah. It's all a bit too emotive, a bit too OTT, isn't it? And it's easy content. And yeah, I think there's usually something more interesting to discuss. Usually. Newcastle game. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, let's leave that to one side. And Mikel Arteta, you know, will now be free to roam the touchline, the <laughs> length and breadth of his technical area, but no further because he might get another yellow card for that, um, you know, for the games ahead. And that will obviously be uh, happy news for him because uh, I get the sense, you know, looking at him in, in the stands at Villa Park last Saturday, he was not enjoying himself whatsoever. But this is like a prime example of sensationalizing things. I saw that being posted on social media as Mikel Arteta has seen enough and he slapped. It was like 95 minutes and 20 seconds of a game that's got 96 minutes on the clock. And you're just like, yeah, he's just the guy's down- got to get down to the dressing room. Have you guys been to Villa Park before? He's an absolute <laughs> rabbit maze. <laughs> so look, Arsenal uh, finished their Champions League group with a 1-1 draw against PSV in midweek. Um top of the group in their return to the Champions League uh, after six, seven years, whatever it was. How pleased, you know, uh, do you think Mikel Arteta is going to be with his team's performance in the group stages uh, of this competition? And one, obviously, that he has taken very seriously. We can talk uh, in a minute maybe about, you know, young players and and their opportunities. Um, But it's clear he took this very, very seriously. Um, He's topped the group. That's where he wanted to be. Um, I think he'll be pretty happy with what he got from his side uh, throughout this group stage. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, don't you, that, that Mikel Arteta will not have had the same view of of this opposition that we all did when it dropped. You know, mm. the sort of talk of, oh, this is just another Europa League group. And I'm sure, that, you know, there is a part of his mind that will have thought that, but even within them, that brings certain expectations of how if you are playing, frankly, inferior opposition, I don't think any of those teams are can aspire to the level that Arsenal can aspire to in this competition. Well, then the challenge then is, is how do you deal with that opposition? And 
what really impressed me is is when those teams rolled into the Emirates. You know, they they got a, a tough lesson in what's what at mm. the highest level of football. Um, you can say, oh, Arsenal haven't proved it against any of the best. Well, they have, the, the draw has not presented them that opportunity, but what the best teams do mm. when they face... Uh, Who's uh, Lons in the Europa League in the in the Champions League? Is they rip them to pieces mm-hmm. if they get the opportunity to do so, and that that's what Arsenal have done. It is always different going away from home. I think that Lons game, aside from it being a perfectly decent performance anyway, had some very specific. I mean, and two energy weird goals from Lons. Yeah, it had. It, it was just. It, you know, it was almost more like an FA Cup tie where it's the biggest moment mm. to hit the town in, in a generation. Of course, that atmosphere is going to be a little bit tougher to play in than, um, you know, away to Bournemouth on a on a Thursday night. It, and that I thought they handled after the initial shakes mm-hmm. pretty well. Uh, I, I think it's really impressive. And I think Arsenal fans, Arteta, everyone should be looking at this team saying, if City slip up, we've got to make sure we're we're one of the teams that can can take this trophy off them. Yeah, the draw will take place on Monday for the knockout round. Arsenal can face uh, Copenhagen, Napoli, Inter Milan, Lazio, PSG, RB Leipzig, uh, or Porto. So, um, some interesting potential ties in there. I mean, there's probably you know you wouldn't want necessarily psg i'm not saying psg are brilliant but you know there is a mm. there is a, a potential perhaps within certain sections of that team that could if it sparks to life cause you an awful lot of problems um, <laughs> i think feel like ben white probably would quite like to come up against mbappe don't you think do you think i don't know <laughs> i think i think not i think he would almost sort of have take a sort of perverse joy in it and uh I mean, Saliba too, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't be top on my list. Either. No, me neither. Me neither. So we'll see. It'll uh, it'll be made on Monday and we'll see who Arsenal get um, when the competition resumes. Now, you know, one of the talking points of the, the game against PSV was the fact that some young players were on the bench but didn't get any playing time. And there was a measure of, I think, frustration based out of fear to an extent when the team was named because uh, William Saliba and Gabriel both played and everyone's going, oh, what are you doing with William Saliba and Gabriel in that team? Which, you know, I get, I completely get. But the reality is that with injuries, um, it's very, very difficult. Like if Arsenal had Takahiro Tomiyasu, Jurian Timber, Thomas Partey and Emile Smith-Rowe or Fabio Vieira fully fit... They could have changed 11 players for this game or for the game against PSV in in midweek and still fielded a really, really strong team. You're looking at Mm. international players coming in there. As it was, eight changes were made, which is a significant number. Mikel Arteta doesn't usually do that. I think it showed you that, you know, he wanted to... Um, it's an acknowledgement of the schedule and what, what Arsenal have got ahead and the load that's been on certain players. You know, Bakayo Saka was on the bench, etc., etc. Um, But I think the changes in the game also demonstrated that he wanted to win it. He really wanted to win this game and not just because it would have got Arsenal another £2 million, although I think that's probably, you know an implicit sort of pressure from above, if you like, you know, because, you know, two million pounds doesn't sound like much in the football world, but that can go quite a long way, you know, when it comes to paying players' wages and things like that. So every every little helps, as, as the saying goes. Um, but, you know, people are worried because why are you bringing on Gabriel Jesus in the 88th minute? What's the point of that? And I, I suppose, you know, the point is, He's trying to win the game. Can Gabriel Jesus maybe get you a goal better than Ethan Nwaneri can? Probably. Is the risk-reward in there a little tilted if somebody gives Jesus a kick in the knee? Yeah, you're going to pay the price there. But but how do you view the, you know, this this culture that Mikel Arteta is trying to introduce or trying or probably has introduced at this point, right, where every game is important, every uh, every 90 minutes is a 90 minutes that Arsenal should com- come out on top. And you want to instill that culture within the players and get them used to these um, heavy schedules. But at the same time, recognize the 
the history of the academy and and the the reputation that the club has for giving opportunities to young players because you know Eddie and Kedia started uh Bukayo Saka was on the bench Emil Smith-Rowe came off the bench you know this um this team has got um players from the academy who've become really really important um you know I I personally wasn't too vexed one way or the other about these young guys getting off I think if it had been 3-0 with 15 minutes to go maybe one or two of them would have got on but at 1-1 against a team like PSV that's won every game uh, in the in the Eredivisie this season and I don't think they've lost a game uh, at home for for over a year you know he's going to take it seriously and I think it, it's sort of that message about how seriously he's going to take it is in some ways uh, is it a, a lesson for these young players? Not maybe not quite a lesson, but they kind of have to understand that this is what he's about, and this is what he feels is at stake in every game. A lesson for the squad too. I mean, I think we really see this, and certainly saw this last season, kind of transmit in the opening minutes of games. But I do remember a number of occasions where Arsenal two nil up. I know that's not the context on Tuesday, but a, a team that's 2-0 up and I might feel like there's there's nothing left to play for in this game would just let in a sloppy goal. Mm. You know, I mean, Arsenal were a team that quite often, if I remember yeah, in those early years, you, you get Mikel Arteta football for 40 minutes, 45, 60 if you've been very good and you'd all worked hard on the training ground. I think even now, maybe Arsenal are a, a team that that can probably excels for 85. Um and I, I think it's important to hammer home, even in a dead rubber, look, you know, this game runs from minute one, and you really think you lot need to pay attention to minute one, we've seen what's happened through that all year, to minute 90 plus. Yeah. And you see, I mean, Arteta talks about that a lot, doesn't he? He really hammers home that. I, I, it has been true. Forest, I remember. Mm-hmm. There's Fulham. plenty of other games that come to mind. where The, the game was there, you just needed to kill it off, and it was a even when they win, it's sometimes a bit more difficult than necessary. And I would suspect that was in the back of Arteta's mind. I still would agree with those people that say, yeah, did you have to bring on Gabriel Jesus, who will play that one minute, as as Guardiola famously said, you know, he'll play the few minutes you give him, like they're the most important few minutes of his life. And I was sort of, I was looking up, because uh, I was still trying to work out when the last time two academy players had combined was for a goal in the Champions League. It's 1991. So mm. when people say Arteta doesn't give youngsters a chance, there's been a lot of managers that have given youngsters a chance, but you have to go back to David Rocastle assisting Kevin Campbell. Wow. The last truly made in hail end goal in the European Cup, I think. Someone okay. will correct me if I'm wrong. I know you obviously, you know, everyone will be listening to this. So someone will let me know, but I'm pretty certain 30 plus years. Wow. There's, there's, there's your manager that doesn't rate Hale End. Um, I, I still would rather have seen like, you know, I, I, I think if you're making substitutions with a rhyme and reason to them in a, in a dead rubber like this, go at it. I don't think anyone would complain about giving Emil Smith row those minutes. I like the idea of giving, a look, having a look at Declan Rice at centre-back, making sure that that smash glass in case of emergency positioning thing, mm. that you've seen it before, that he's played next to Gabriel. That I like. <laughs> Erdegaard, Jesus. I don't know. I, I I would have, but like you, it, it's hard to get riled up because I just can't see it in the context of a manager that, as some will say, doesn't rate the academy. Like he's built his team around young footballers, many of whom have come from hell end. Like mm. this clearly is a coach that will give youngsters his, his chance. You know, if Arsenal fans, if you think you're unhappy with your academy, go and let, get Antonio Conte in at the club and see what happens there. Yeah. Look at what's going on at Man United even, you know, I mean, yeah. there is a balance and look, I, I'm like any Arsenal fan. It's great to see young guys come on and get a chance and, you know, I just I just find it hard to square that circle, you know, where where there's just so much anger about. Well, we didn't give a 16 year old some minutes, but he's 16. You know, his time will come. Um, he's be, he's he's getting more involved. We've come through the game unscathed. It seems like if someone comes out of it with an injury, then you go, well, you know, you made a bad decision there, and he'll turn around and say, well, injuries can happen anytime you know, in any game or anything else. I'm with you though. I did, I did quite like 
Declan Rice at centre-back as a thing? Because, you know, we don't have Tommy Asu at the moment, and Tommy Asu is going off to the uh, Asian Cup in January, so he's not going to be there. Um, Jurian Timmer is going to be out for another while yet, although he is making good progress, according to, to Mikel Arteta. So it is an area where we are kind of light, you know, and to have another option there, perhaps when you also maybe um, can rejig the team a little bit, like it's sort of, if you're playing, for example, um, you know, a big team away from home and you have some kind of injury crisis, you know, do you want, for example, Rice at center back with Ben White at right back to, you know, deal with the attacking threat of the uh, the good team that you're facing with, let's say, someone like Jorginho in midfield? Or do you want to play someone like Cedric at right back, which is, you know, very much a weak link, even though you are obviously weakening your team, taking Rice out. It's, it's sort of degrees of um, degrees of weakness, I guess. And it's obviously something he's been thinking about a little bit in terms of cover at this moment in time because of the injuries that we've got. Well, it's a funny thing, isn't it, always with um, the the English footballing world that we we see a player in one position and we go, yeah, what about if we, uh, and this is, the, this everyone has always talked about this with Rice, go, yeah, what about if we tried him in a completely different position and ha- see how he gets on there? But I think it's a, for someone, especially someone like Rice, who having come through a David Moy, uh, with David Moyes at West Ham, all credit to the work Moyes has done on Declan Rice. I think every Arsenal fan would agree with me on that. But he has had to work hard on the defensive side of the game. And and you do find, you know, I don't know if Javier, I feel like I remember Javier Mascherano saying something like this, that it, it it's not as hard as people might think, just sort of taking that step back and placing yourself in, in the back line. You're, you know, he has, Rice has had to work for so long as this anchoring midfielder on his spatial awareness. And actually to an extent, of course, he needs to be conscious of the runs in behind, but he always mm-hmm. did as a DM as well. It becomes a little less charged when he's playing centre-back. Like you, I, I like all the options there. I think what's also true is is that, you know, say Arsenal get a red card in their defence, can you save your substitutes by pushing Rice back? Um, mm-hmm. Could you, for a game where you really think you're going to need to be hitting fast counters, could Rice play centre-back with Partey, who's maybe got those more of those progressive passes playing deep? It, I mean, optionality is so like it's mm. so valuable in this this squad, and we we know Arteta craves this because look at some of the defenders he's bought: Ben White, Tommy Asu, Yuri and Timber, um, and like he's lost a lot of those versatile pieces. So he's almost going to have to force versatility, yeah, out of someone else. I mean, I still think if we see Declan Rice uh, at centre back, something's gone wrong. Oh sure, and it should be like, oh dear God. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Arsenal have just lost one of the best defensive midfielders in the league, but yeah, at least he knows what he's doing. No, he does. I mean, look, he played uh, played at centre back for Ireland before he uh, before he became English all of a sudden. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's in his locker. It's definitely in his locker. You know, so I, I just thought it was an interesting an interesting little thing. We talked about you know how well Arsenal have done in this group, and I suppose. When you look at the group being one, an Arsenal position in the Premier League, not top anymore, but, you know, there or thereabouts, um, you know, after 16 games of, of the season. When you look at how, for example, Manchester United and Newcastle United have struggled to produce domestically and in Europe, it does show you the progression of, of uh, Arteta's side and the ability to... Uh, cope, compete is the word I'm looking for, compete across um, two fronts. And obviously, second half of the season, legs get tired or fatigue becomes more of a thing. You pick up injuries and all the rest of it. But, you know, it's not as if Newcastle didn't spend a load of money. It's not as if Manchester United didn't spend a load of money knowing that this was going to be, you know, part and parcel of their season. So I, I think it's, you know, it's even more impressive, you know, in the light of the well, your mileage may vary on how hilarious it is to see those two sides uh, bottom of their groups. But uh, to see that is, uh, you know, and see where we are, it's it's a slight bit chalk and cheese. I mean, it, what I really enjoy, as someone who sort of professionally has to watch a lot of Champions League football, what I really enjoy is watching Manchester United and even Newcastle because, you know what, it's you never know which way it's going to take you. I mean, somehow, like, 
the one moment for Man United, you've G'd yourself up for a game of pure, unrelenting nonsense. And you're like, this is what United always deliver. Mm. They go and like offer the most tepid, timid performance. And I'm saying that because it, in contrast, I don't enjoy watching art, like from a neutral perspective, I do not enjoy watching Arsenal in the Champions League because they are, and, and quite often in the Premier League, because they are controlling, commanding, assertive. I know that quite rightly, a lot of people criticised Gary Neville when he said Arsenal were too emotional last season. And to an extent, I think there was, you know, it was when he was saying there's a run in City. The fact that that happened didn't necessarily mean he was right to call it, because I don't think there was evidence that Arsenal's emotions were what was going to cost them the title. But I do think Arsenal are sort of better off this season for being largely a team that is just a bit more cold-blooded, a bit duller, um, a bit more defensive, while still, you know, I think now in XG terms, they're, where are they sort of, I mean, they're top if you don't take out all the many, many penalties they've had. Um, That serves Arsenal quite well. And that's a team that will be successful in Europe and I think will be successful in the Premier League. It's not... You know, there's there's not that much hype and excitement around them. And maybe that's a good thing. Like, it's now, as a fan base, Arsenal fans seem to just take for granted that's like, yeah, okay, we're here now and we'll be here next year. And, what you know, what's that What's that extra 1-2% that mm. can get us across the line? And I think they're edging towards that. I certainly think, I mean, we'll see against Liverpool, but I certainly think there's something about Arsenal I feel is more sustainable than Liverpool's you score three, we'll score four approach i mean the thing about that approach from liverpool is that well you score four we'll score five you score five we'll score six you know there is (laughs) there's a sort of relentlessness to that and i'm sorry i'm going to jump ahead just a little bit here because i did have this marked down as a question because you know in a couple of weeks uh, next weekend actually or weekend after next we play liverpool away and then of course there is an fa cup game and as is so often the case in uh, the way fixtures end up being scheduled you know you meet a team and then you play them the next weekend in the cup or whatever it might be but they're two very interesting uh, fixtures aren't they because you know FA Cup third round if you get Colchester you know it's a chance for everybody to go out and have a nice time mm. run around in January keep yourself warm score a few goals and everybody's going oh that guy's quite good but you know it's very different when you're playing Liverpool and it's very different when there's a trophy at stake and, and Mikel Arteta I'm, I'm sure will be conscious that we are heading into, into 2024 it was 2020 when he won the FA Cup in his first season and, you know, trophies are how managers are judged. And I'm not saying that um, anything other than Mikel Arteta has done a fantastic job, but, but mm. you know, he himself will be absolutely determined to win as much as he can, you know, uh, and whether that makes him uh, a little too... Uh, determined to, you know, get a point or get two points against PSV when he doesn't really need them or if he doesn't need to put on those guys, you know, but that might be just part and parcel of of who he is. But I think these two games are, are going to be fascinating because, you know, when you talk about Arsenal being controlling, a bit more ruthless, a bit more machine-like, maybe, it it feels to me like it's very difficult for games against Liverpool to go that way because there is sort of an inherent chaos with the way Liverpool play and you know it it as much as you try and do what you want to do you're going to have to react to the way that they play the game as well you get sucked into it we saw it last season you know it was just mayhem at Anfield you know after Arsenal when Arsenal had done everything right yeah you know and then it, it can flip and I know everyone talks about that Granite Xhaka moment you know I'm I just find stuff like that a little too simplistic to be honest it's just what Liverpool can do, you know. Do you need Granite Jacket to switch Liverpool on? I'm not sure. Um, but but these two games, you know, we've seen Arsenal beat Manchester City. It will be really interesting to see how well they fare against you know a Liverpool side who can, as you say, score three, four, five um, with some of the best players uh, in the league in that sort of forward line. Yeah, it's a really, it's a real grey area I find around Arsenal away as well because the. Well, two of the big tests, you would say they've dealt at St. James's Park and, and Villa Park. You would say they, they dealt with them quite impressively for a team that got no points. zero points. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and I mean, I, you know, I have to say that the weekend, the, the atmosphere at Villa Park was 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 like few others you've experienced. And actually, I thought Arsenal did a, a very good job, even when Villa were a goal up, of, of quelling that crowd. And that becomes all the harder at Anfield, especially in a what we presume will be sort of around top of the table clash. Mm. Um, like there are there are there are things that are there for Arsenal that they can really exploit. You know, when I watch Liverpool, of course, it's, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold's moving into to midfield is brilliant, but there are spaces there and there are spaces that you'd love to see Martinelli and Jesus hit. Mm. You know, this, frankly, the same on the opposite flank. It, you know, Andrew Robertson is no um, Ben White when it comes to sort of inverting as a fullback. He's out anyway, isn't he? So I, th- I think he's now back in train. You know, that's that classic right. Liverpool thing of, uh, it, which it always seems to happen. This is very much the Harry Kane factor of <laughs> big be, game. He'll be back. Uh, they just about all make it back. It never seems to happen to Arsenal, but we, or with Arsenal players, but it always seems to happen when Arsenal are playing a big yeah. opponent. Um, and yet you set sort of you sort of set against that, like well. Okay, that's all well and good that you can, you can hit Liverpool's weak points, but Zinchenko <laughs> against Mo Salah and uh, Shaboshlai, like they, you don't even they don't even need for it to be a weak point for them mm-hmm. to give you hell mm-hmm. for, for ninety minutes. So it, it feels like if Arsenal could come out of that though, having done what they did at St James's Park and with any points. I'm not saying that as a just good dear God, just get the points. I mean, mm. like play your way and just come, come back with some sort of reward. That to me would, would, to, would speak to a, a real contender. And, and I mean, you know, to put some meat on the bones here, Arsenal have given up about 11 and a half expected goals um, in 16 games. Liverpool are about 19.2, which is not that far off kind of the, the, what Arsenal were doing. Mm. But that will get ex- that, that that can get punished. It might not get punished by Arsenal on that day, but you know the the opportunity ought to be there for Arsenal to do that. Um, it's not a perfect defence, and I feel like Arsenal can put in a performance defensively that is good enough to just about slow Liverpool mm. down. Just about, and if they can do that, I think there are opportunities for them. Yeah, I mean, we can talk, we will obviously talk about that game a little more uh, closer to the time. I just looked up the uh, Premier Injuries website just to check on Andrew Robertson and uh, he had surgery on November, or he said he'd surgery three weeks uh, before November 18th, taking a week by week. Potential return is the first of the first 2024. Okay. Um, So we'll see, but Alexis McAllister, um, the quote Regarding him, I just looked at this. The stud went through to the muscle onto the bone. And now we have to wait until it's healed because it's pretty painful. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty fucking painful, all right? <laughs> Jesus. Um, oh, my Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's obviously a, a nasty one for him. I'm not saying I uh, hope it's so nasty he, he misses out, but that's also exactly uh, what I'm saying. <laughs> um, Emil Smith-Rowe made his comeback. Comeback if you want to call it that, from his latest injury um, in the game against PSV. There was a very interesting quote from Mikel Arteta before the game where he was asked, uh, you know, about um, Smith Rowe coming back and he talked about his rehab. You know, this is what you have to go through as a footballer. Uh, If he can use those setbacks in a powerful way, he will be a much better player. He said, I think he's on the uh, the right path. The way he's done his rehab, I haven't seen it like he's done it this time. Sort of suggesting that, you know, there's a real intent and focus to the way that he has done his his latest rehab. And he is, I think, maybe back a little sooner than people had expected because it was a couple of questions maybe a couple of weeks ago, like, will they be back before the new year, before the, you know, the FA Cup game? And it was like, "Mm, we're not sure. And now he's back and, uh, and in training. I mean, this is sort of, I'm not going to say last chance saloon for Emil Smith-Rowe or anything like that, but he's had 18 months of being impacted by injury. You know, the surgery he had, he was there, but not playing and not being picked. And that's Mm. obviously because of um, the surgery and maybe 
how he did his rehab. Maybe um, there was something to what Mikel Arteta was saying in that. But, you know, he came back, started the game against uh, Sheffield United. Arsenal won 5-0. He played fine. Then he gets another knee injury and he's he's out. But he's back now and he's back at a time when I think Arsenal need someone to come into the team and, and give it a little bit of something different. And when you look at the player profiles that Arsenal have in the front five uh, and in midfield, I think he has just something a little bit different from some of those players. So it's a moment for him, isn't it, to to maybe reestablish himself. If he can get some minutes and, and, and marry those minutes with some end product over the coming weeks, it is a chance for him to reestablish himself if he can stay fit. Um, but, you know, there he must be at something of a crossroads um, because of everything that's gone on in, in the last 18 months or so. Oh, absolutely. And and on the point you made about him coming back a little bit ahead of schedule, I mean, I, I was told on more than one occasion that this was looking to be a sort of late December return. So mm. all credit to him um, in that regard. And it, it's interesting to hear Arteta talking like that. I'm sure he is, you know, he's telling the truth there. But I think it would be fair to say that Smith Rowe, in comparison with other players at Arsenal, when Arteta talks about him, it's less carrot, more stick. Mm. And that, I did feel, was like noticeably different this time around. Now, you know, I don't know whether that is Arteta going, okay, the old way didn't get through to him. I need to try this different. Or if he's just, you know, straight up, just actually, this is the truth. But I mean, the one thing I would say about Smith-Rowe, we've not seen a lot of him this season, but the uh, Brentford away in the League Cup, I thought was went really goes to the, the point you were making about how he offers something different, which is even with Havertz rapidly improving uh, and with Erdegaard also getting back to better form than, than he had when Smith-Rowe went down, neither of them are the, quite have the same instinct for when the pass comes to them pass go go mm. really quick no one i think in, in the arsenal squad does that quite as aggressively as smith wrote always a sort of attacking the box maybe not kind of the position positional discipline arteta might like from a number eight but it, it's clearly something different and valuable he will he will draw you know he has a gravity to him that maybe some of the other central players don't have and like you say given the games ahead you can see you can see real value to that. I mean, almost to an extent, although it will probably come too early for him to start. You look at a team like Brighton that can be that can that that, that can be quite hard to break down. Mm. Uh, well, they can also when the mood takes them, they can be very easy to break down. Sure, but uh, someone that that sort of is capable of slaloming his way through some of the bigger guys. I could see real value to hit to Smith Rowe in a game like that. I, I think that one will come too soon. And I also think Havertz is a really good fit against a team like Brighton. Mm. But I think there will be lots of games where a dribbler, a player that, that forces contact, that will be a really valuable trait to have in this Arsenal team. And of course, with no Fabio Vieira as well, no, you know, even guys like Partey, which would mean more rice at, at left eight, the minutes are there and they're, they're going to need to be filled between now and, uh, now and um, the FA Cup third round. I mean, if only he could play left back or right back. <laughs> uh, I think that might be a stretch. Uh, Mikel Arteta does like versatility, but um, I think that might be a bit much. I, mean, I suppose the thing is, like, even if he's not going to start games, that that extra option off the bench is something that Arsenal have been missing. Like, what you would have given for, you know a match fit Emile Smith-Rowe to come off the bench at Villa Park mm. for 15 minutes, you know, with that high line, with that, I won't say weakness that Aston Villa have, but with that tactic that Aston Villa have that you have to try and break down, you know, another guy to to sort of run from deep. Um, you know, he I said on the blog today, he sort of reminds me of Thomas Rosicki in the way that he, he, he can play between the lines. It also reminds me, obviously, of Thomas Rosicki because of, you know, how injured he is quite a lot. But I think, <laughs> no, well, I mean, that's, that's yeah, it's true. It's true. You know, I, I'm not being facetious. It just, there is that unfortunate similarity with, with those two guys. But, but to give a bit of extra depth on the bench, you know, um, so many games these days are decided late 
extremely late at times, you know, as we saw against Brentford, as we saw against uh, Luton uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, having those extra options on the bench could be very useful. And, you know, I'll throw the name of Reese Nelson into the mix here as well, because, look, he's been peripheral. Arsenal wanted him to sign a new deal. He signed a new deal. He hasn't played a great deal. Um, I don't think anyone's expecting him to start too much. But do you think maybe the performance that he put in against PSV, which was um, not only quite lively from an attacking point of view, but but very hardworking, because I think he made more tackles than any other Arsenal player on the night. I think he made six tackles in total, and, and the next guy was maybe three or four. Um, was a sort of was him showing that, look, I'm going to try and contribute as much as I can going forward, but when I need to, I'm going to get stuck in, I'm going to win my duels, and if if that doesn't get you a chance under Mikel Arteta, I don't know what will. I certainly think that 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 was Nelson's view on it. I, 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 well, I don't fear, but I suspect that it does. I don't really know that it matters anymore. It sort of feels to me like Arteta's mind is made up on Reese Nelson and that, that the words that he, he says so glowingly about him are just not married to actions, which say that even in the game, which I felt was crying out for, for Reese Nelson, when Arsenal had to t- felt compelled to take Martinelli off against Villa. And you just thought we need someone to stretch that line in behind. Arteta was not, was not taken with Nelson. And, mm. um, I, you know, it's, it's now so rare that we see him in the Premier League this season. I mean, he has he has fewer minutes than Smith Rowe, despite having been fit throughout the season. He has only twelve more minutes than Urien Timber. It's he played an hour of Premier League football. You know, the reality is is, is Arteta showing by his actions that that he's not having a Reese Nelson, and he doesn't sort of see him as anything more than a very expensive. Why? Yeah, uh, why was he so? determined to keep him at the club I, that i have no idea it's, a good it's question. really hard to understand other than that he'd have to be replaced and yeah he'd walk out the door for nothing um and i suppose there's the 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 opportunity cost argument there mm. and you know better to to have smith row uh, reese nelson for on a hundred grand than sign someone that's probably going to want a hundred grand to play for arsenal mm. it's less than a hundred grand i should say as well someone that's going to want to play for Arsenal will will expect a good salary. Mm. But it's, uh, I don't know. I I don't see that. I don't don't know if it will reach its head in January, but it, it's, um, it can't be one for the long term unless, unless something dramatic changes. Right. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, You never know what way things can go for, for players. I did have a final question here about January, but you know, it's 14th of December. We've got a whole month of mayhem and transfer nonsense to come. It's only two weeks away. The greatest gift that any football fan can get for <laughs> Christmas is the January transfer window opening. And uh, oh, God, <laughs> here's a box I always of book bullshit. A holiday in January yeah, for yeah. this exact reason. Good idea. I hope you're going somewhere nice. Uh, and I won't trouble you with a question about it now because uh, we can have that discussion again at some point. As ever, James, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Thank you very much indeed to James. You can find him on Twitter. He is at James Bench, at James Bench, who writes about football for CBS Sports. And you can hear him on the Inside Arsenal podcast with Charles Watts as well, which you can get in all the usual podcast places. So there you go. Plenty to get our teeth into there. And of course, the fact that the FA charges against Mikel Arteta were found to be not proven means, of course, that he's now got a... A clean bill of health. The slate has been wiped clean, if you like. Until next time, because there's pretty much bound to be a next time. For now, though, we can just concentrate on the football, starting with the game against Brighton on Sunday, which we will talk about in more depth in our Premier League preview podcast, available only to our Patreon members. If you would like to sign up to our Patreon to get instant access to all the stuff that we do there and help support everything that we do on Arsblog, you can sign up for around a fiver a month at patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. That is patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. And just a quick reminder that as we are heading into uh, Christmas and all the rest of it, if you're looking for gift ideas, have a look at arsbiz, that's B-I-Z, arsbiz.arsblog.com. That is a compendium of Arsenal supporters, businesses, many of whom deal in uh, gifts and things that you could give a loved one for Christmas. You'd also be supporting fellow Gooners, you know, and their small businesses, and there's loads there, arts, crafts, lifestyle stuff. I can't even, you know, begin to explain just how much is there. So do have a look. You might just find the perfect gift for your loved one or friend or child or acquaintance or neighbor or enemy. I don't know. Do people give Christmas gifts to their enemies? I know I do. They find it weird and disconcerting. They don't quite know what to make of it. Puts them off their guard and, and you know, that's when they're vulnerable. Right. I'm going to leave it there. We will, of course, have an Arsecast Extra for you on Monday, hopefully talking about a good win over Brighton uh, at the weekend. In the meantime, take it easy, folks, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. In the evidence you submitted to this court, you said that you called him a fucking shithead with a head of shit that has a lot of shit in it. Now, you don't deny using those words, but you say that in your own native tongue, calling somebody a fucking shithead with a head of shit that has a lot of shit in it means something else entirely. Yes. And what does it mean? It means that he is a fucking shithead whose head is quite literally full of shit and the shit itself has many shit inside the shit. So you're saying that the, the shit has actual shit inside the shit?
This is correct. Well, in that case, I've got no choice but to throw out the charges. You, sir, are a free man. Thank you, Your Honor. You are a massive prick. I'm assuming that means something else in your language. Yes? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.